Welcome to 42 Answers from Founders for Founders, a podcast series brought to you by Project A Ventures, the operational VC. My name is Rainer Berak, operating partner at Project A, and our guest today is Tim Schumacher. Welcome. Hello. In this podcast, we talk to great founders and to people who have been great founders in the past or work a lot together with them. And we ask them the same set of questions in the domains that we think matter tremendously for building a successful company. And these are tech, growth, people, data, and ESG. Tim, very warm welcome. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? My name is Tim Schumacher. I am a founder. I used to be a geek, programmed a lot in my teenage years, but then went on to study business, started my first company with uh, 23, a uh, company called Cedo, Cedo.com, a domain marketplace, uh, which I then grew for 10 years as a CEO and founder, took it public uh, and ultimately sold. Um, since then, I've been founding multiple companies, investing in companies, and uh, for the last two years, I've been switching sides and going mainly on the investment side uh, with a climate VC. Uh, where we invest in sustainable companies. And that is the World Fund. That is the World Fund, exactly. That's the World Fund. And uh, companies where you have been um, an angel investor, but also, as far as I know, very active is, for example, IO, um, who are very known for Adblock Plus, correct? Yes, that is correct. Or Ecosia, for example, the green search Ecosia, engine true. Yes. Uh, is another interesting one. Um, so always quite an ESG or environmental uh, uh, focus. And uh, certainly a lot of experience in uh, building companies. So absolutely, um, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, let's get started. I think that will be a very interesting set of answers. People. If you would start a company, a startup today, what would be your first five hires? My first five hires would be all in product, marketing, and sales. So actually shipping something, talking to customers and marketing uh, your product. Uh, that essentially are the core disciplines. Um, I would not worry about any of the administrative sides. Uh, first, that's stuff you can do on the side at the beginning, but the first five hires need to be product oriented. Okay. And, and really strong coming from the market, not purely from the tech side, if I understand. Absolutely. So it needs to be equally market and tech. Okay. Um, are these typically the first five hires that you see in a new company? In the good companies, definitely, yes. Um, in the bad companies, I see that, for example, one of the first hires is a CFO. Um, to me, that is usually a red flag. <laughs> Nothing um, against CFOs, very important yeah, yeah. at a later stage, um, uh, but not, uh, not in the super early stage. What are the hardest hires of today? Wow, that's a good question. A lot of hires are hard. Of course, developers. No, no secret here. Um, but also other hires which, which are culturally important. So, for example, at some stage, uh, hiring a head of HR is important. I would say once you're about 30, 40 people, uh, and that's a very important hire also for the for the culture of the company and the further growth. Um, and so uh, that is a, that is another difficult one. How do you measure employee satisfaction? 
In the beginning, you measure it by just sitting in one room or virtually uh, in one room if you're a remote company and just talking to each other. Once uh, again, you're at this pivotal point of 20, 30 people where you lose touch with everyone on a daily basis. Um, I'm a big believer in in, in measuring things um, and and having uh, and having uh, tools uh, where you measure employee satisfaction on an on an ongoing basis and also look at tools uh, where um, where you facilitate the the well being and the social connection the social fabric between uh, between people uh, like like Remy uh, so for example. Um, these these type of things, I think, become more important once you once you get a little bit bigger. How do you measure employee performance? Employee performance again, I think it's important to distinguish between the more creative functions, things like development, product UX, where it's harder to measure it on a on an output basis uh, where it's it's really about seeing how people ship things in the long run, how they look like, but it's harder to measure. And the more quantitative functions, things like customer support, sales, where you can actually have clear goals, t clear targets, also where bonuses are tied to individual performance is not wrong, while it's actually very detrimental in the first bucket of the creative uh, positions. Um, and, and there you measure it by, um, by, yeah, simply, simply their output. You need to measure a customer service ticket answered and, and quality of their tickets. You need to measure uh, amount of sales calls made and, uh, how they resulted, uh, into, uh, in, into closed packages and so on and so forth. But I think it's really always important to, to look at that. There are those two buckets and, uh, you, you treat them differently. What's your favorite type of org chart? How should an organization be structured, in your opinion? Um, in the beginning, I think you don't really need much of an org chart. You start, again, to need it when you're like 20, 25 people. Um, uh, it, it, my, my favorite org chart generally is that there are multiple founders who, One is has, for example, the, the customer facing side, and then he has all the he or she has all the customer facing people, uh, and 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 uh, that there is a certain amount of hierarchy, but it's it's also somewhat flat. But responsibilities need to be clear. Um, I think is a there's a there's a common misconception that uh, the total absence of hierarchy um, and decision-making is, is, is a good thing. It usually leads to chaos. What's your approach to culture? My approach to culture is that actually it's built up mostly by founders being role models. It's something you cannot just write on paper and say, hey, this is our set of values, this is our culture, but culture is, is made, it's not written. It's If you work hard, the team will work hard. If you are honest, the team will be honest. Um, and the same with the negatives. Uh, if you tend to screw people, then your team will tend to screw other people. Um, and so it's really about what you do and how your actions are, and that will build culture and about the people you hire. 
What's your preference to remote first or office first? I think both can work, but whatever you do, do it straight and and don't deviate from your set. So if if you have a if you have a remote first company, then really build everything remote. And then yeah, maybe there are little co-working spaces where people sit, but don't try to uh, then have like big office centers where uh, you, you deviate from your model. And likewise, um, if, if you are a, a, a non-remote company, uh, then I think it's okay that you miss out on certain people. You just, you just stick to your model and carry that through. That's interesting because actually most people we have in this podcast answer that it's people first, hybrid first, that they basically exactly want to offer like a big office where everybody can come, but everybody can also stay away. Um, which disadvantage do you see in that? Well, there's, it, it can also be a good model because some, some people uh, want to uh, go into the office and others won't. The disadvantage is that there's a, there's a, uh, a two class system that, that there is office communication and it, it starts deteriorating um, the, um, the, the, the remote work. Uh, and, uh, and then the office people are kind of the ones who have all the information and all the other ones. Uh, tend to be left out. Um, and, and that's a lot harder than, than just going with one or the other model. Tech. You typically invest in tech companies. Is that correct? That's correct. And you would also, in with, with World Fund, where you invest in climate uh, companies, these are also typically tech companies? Yes, absolutely. All of them are tech companies. Okay. Um, if you think about the two functions, product and development, um, should one of the two be in the lead for the overall techno uh, technology sector? It depends a little bit on the stage of the company. Very often in the very early stage, especially if you have a deep tech company, um, tech is in lead because you're more in the research phase. At some point, uh, I think product should take the lead um, uh, and their client feedback and continuous iteration regardless of the underlying tech tech becomes a lot more important who in the company should decide what's to be developed next next feature how should the roadmap look etc so i think it's important to have somewhat of a of, of a quantitative process there where user feedback potential uh, so so market potential um, sales input is taken into account so that there is a, a clear quantitative transparent process where everybody knows what are the input factors but at the end that there is one person and it could be the CEO who says okay now we have all this information and yep there is different opinions but now we decide because otherwise, What very often happens is that one side goes into one direction, the other one goes into the other one, um, uh, and 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 uh, that can be very detrimental. So I, I think it's it's important to have someone at the end to decide and say, okay, we're doing X this quarter, and Y next quarter. Um, but uh, but in the process leading up to this, it should be super transparent and super clear, and not just one decision maker making all those decisions. Kind of behind closed doors so i think the combination of a transparent quantified process plus at the end a tie break decision maker um, works best okay 
What's your take on product-led growth? Well, uh, I mean, product-led growth is, is, is a nice buzzword. It's what most companies should do these days. Uh, but it was also the same 20 years ago is that you actually, you don't just, you don't do project work and you don't do just, you don't grow through sales, but you actually grow through your own product. Um, and uh, the, the PLG acronym is just been a bit fashionable, but it's it's the right approach. But it has also been the right, right approach when it was still called something different. Which role should design play in a company um, of yours? That's a great question. So I think design is a, is is very important. Um, if people see something crappy, whether that's an investor deck or it's a website, they automatically assume that it's bad. Um, so it, it, it's definitely a low-hanging fruit. Um, and it's something where you should always spend some money on making everything nice. Um, now, you can also overdo it. I've, I've had one or two companies which had beautiful products. They were just... Everything was perfect, but they were like so perfectionist that they forgot about things like, like in a, in a take a marketplace for example. One of them was a marketplaces. Like the the, the best marketplace in the U.S. is still Craigslist, uh, and one of the best ones in Germany is still eBay Kleinanzeigen. Both of them are really bad when it comes to design. But in a marketplace, actually, design is not that important. So you can also kind of uh, in Germany you say you can also sterben in Schönheit. I don't know what the English word for that is. You shouldn't do it that way, but um, uh, the design actually does does play a role um, as long as you don't forget about everything else. Would you ever recommend any of your early stage tech companies to outsource software development or is that something you would always keep inside? Yes, I would always keep it inside. I would recommend kind of body leasing or offshoring in a way that you have developers somewhere else whom you quote unquote own. So uh, a, a developer, let's say in Armenia uh, or two developers, and they might be technically employed by uh, an employer of record or, or even a type of agency, but they work full time with you. You treat them like any other employee and they have full passion for your product. Uh, they shouldn't just work for other people or the agency trying to optimize for billable hours. All of those things are really bad. Um, but there are cases where you actually can, can work with agencies in, in ways that it makes sense to just ramp up development capacities faster. Growth. If you think about the complete funnel, like from brand to marketing to sales to customer success, should startups, should tech companies have all of these and do your companies typically have all of these functions? Well, it, a company tends to have a core, a core DNA, a core culture, and usually they are better in one of those disciplines and they are not as good as one of the other ones. So for example, I have many companies who are good on the product uh, tech side, but not that good on this, on the sales side. Um, and it means that at the beginning, for example, if you have a SaaS product, you start to grow with self-service and uh, with product-led growth, with onboarding, self-onboarding. At some point, you will need to develop other disciplines. 
um, but you don't have to have it right at the beginning. Um, I think you can actually, as long as you target your niche properly, then you can work and say, okay, we just don't do sales. I have many companies, many SaaS companies who say we don't have a sales function. That's okay. At some point when you're, you're approaching, yeah, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 million AR, then you will automatically have the need to, to, uh, uh, to talk to bigger clients because otherwise you just won't get them and that will limit your growth. And then that's the difference between a company which will hit the, for example, 10 million AR ceiling versus one which will blast right through it and get to 100 million. Yeah, so my next question is who of these functions <clears throat> would be in the lead and how you would structure them? But you keep coming back and I, and I 100% understand that. I, I didn't mention product as part of this funnel, but it obviously is, or depending on how you how you slice and dice your company, it is. So I guess you would see product in the lead for the whole go-to-market approach, correct? I would see product in the lead for that, yes. Yeah. Okay. How can you make sure that if you have all these functions that depend on each other in order to bring success to the company and bring revenue, um, that they don't work in silos and that they start to blame each other in case things revenue doesn't come in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's a multitude of things. It's, again, culture. Culture should not be blame, but culture should be transparent, open. Mistakes should be forgiven. Second thing is communication. There should be clear layers of communication between all those silos uh, with, with, this, with the founders and, and, and C-level to be in charge to facilitate that. Um, OKRs can play a big role because then every quarter you make sure that the, the goals are actually aligned um, and not uh, playing against each other. And, um, and uh, a lot is also kind of the, the vision of a company is like you actually rally your, your troops behind a common goal, which is bigger than individual um, individual uh, performance. And last but not least, it's... Uh, It's just also generally having more company goals than individual goals uh, or even bonuses. That's actually, that's, that's probably a topic on its own for, for a podcast on its own. The whole topic of should you set goals for, for each individual or each team only within their own area and within their own reach? Or should you have overarching goals which helps to break down silos? but they, they might not be able to directly impact themselves. Mm -hmm. But hey, maybe that is exactly the way they start to think out of their own domain and, and, and start to across teams to, to achieve right. something larger. How important is brand for you? I mean, a brand is important. And I think you build a brand by just doing the right thing and serving a customer need. I don't believe in branding as a as a discipline in an early stage. So spending money on branding is usually not well spent in an early stage. You just you need to serve a customer need and that builds up the brand because you have happy clients and they recommend each other. And some of the best companies of mine really have not spent any money on branding. I mean take Adblock Plus for example, it grew completely organically because people said like, "Hey, Adblock is great. It removes internet from my, uh, uh, from it improves advertising from my internet stream, and uh, that's uh, that's how the company grew. And branding kind of happened 
as a side. And that's, that's, that's what I often see with the strongest companies. Um, makes the next question hard. How do you approach brand? I mean, in the cases where you have it and, and maybe, um, here it would be interesting to hear your view on, on world fund, because I know that with Danielle, uh, as one of, as one of, um, the, the partners in world fund, um, he's, as far as I know, quite an, quite an ambassador of, of, of building a brand, uh, in the first place. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there is, but it's also there. It's, it's about doing the right things. So also we don't spend crazy amount of money there on branding. Like we do the right things. We engage in social media. We, we show with competent articles that we know our domain. We try to do the right deal. So branding is, is there more a natural byproduct, um, but not something where we just spend crazy amount of money. Uh, now I, I, I agree with you there that, that, Branding in this way is important as, a, as the sum of the actions. Uh, I was referring more to branding as where sometimes I've seen founders, they get their first VC investment and, and they want to run a billboard campaign to get their brand out. And the, the brand is pretty meaningless because it, it's, it's disconnected to what, what the customer uh, actually wants. Which marketing channels would you recommend um, for an early stage uh, startup uh, to use and, and which are probably outdated or not anymore uh, to be used? So, I mean, with marketing, there are so many channels and for different products, different things work, whether it's uh, search engine ads or search engine optimization, obviously one channel, which is important for everyone. And also, especially search engine optimization is Is, is very cost effective. Uh, that means a lot of content production because that kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, social, uh, whether paid or organic, works for some, uh, not for others. Um, affiliate or, or, or uh, customer referral programs is, uh, I think, a good discipline and it's often overlooked. Uh, it needs a little bit of management work, but it's something solar for example they just uh, they just uh, had a had a hundred million round yesterday announced solar the solar roof company uh, they have a really good customer referral program like you have a solar roof people will ask you about it your neighbors will ask you about it and they they build this very genuinely into the product and so so I think those things can work really well um, uh, I would say those are the kind of the absolute main channels um, And, and they, they continue to be for the foreseeable futures. It's just then within, within those disciplines, of course, the different actors change. So let's take social, for example. TikTok wasn't on the map three years ago. Now it's obviously a channel. At the same time, when you're in, in a hardcore B2B area, so World Fund, for example, where we're marketing on the one side to investors, on the other side to startups, TikTok doesn't really play a role. If you have a consumer product, you're selling to young people, of course, it's huge. What's your view on performance marketing? Our CMO used to say, like at the last Project A Knowledge Conference, performance marketing is dead. Obviously not meant exactly like that. It's a bit of a controversial position, but, but what's your view? Is, is performance marketing dying anytime soon? No, no. Why should it? I mean, it's performance marketing means you market and you measure what you do. And the internet uh, compared to prior times where it was harder to measure things has has brought a complete new possibility of of measuring um of, of measuring the the quality and quantity of marketing and so uh, 
mean, that's essentially what performance marketing is. And it's, I think it's stronger than ever. Um, would you recommend having salespeople in a tech startup? I mean, there's this classic picture that a good tech startup has product and sales. Somebody builds and then somebody ships it to the market. Um, you agree? Would, would you always, uh, you mentioned it earlier, I think, uh, you don't always need salespeople, but do you typically see the companies having salespeople? It depends on the product. There are some companies which just simply sell into enterprise and it's impossible to sell without um, having actual salespeople. And there are other ones where you, uh, for example, create nice uh, predefined uh, SaaS packages and you don't need salespeople. It's completely self-serve. And both can work. It really just depends a lot on the product. Um, in the companies which have self-service products, it's important that at a certain from from a certain size on so so maybe 10 20 million ar but that's just a rough ball ballpark um you need salespeople because you start getting making bigger tickets and and uh, so what worked for you to grow initially might not work for you for the next uh, phase of growth um, but also it, it, there are other companies where it's fine to have salespeople from the very beginning then it's just super important that they don't drive the product agenda because What is a common problem I see is that if the salespeople dominate things, then you kind of morph into a, a project company um, where you build individual things for people, uh, so for, 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 for things your customer requests. And there's nothing wrong in building something for what your customer requests, but it should be something for all customers or many customers, not for just one individually. Uh, and that's a very fine line. If the company has too many salespeople, then that line tilts towards just building something per individual requests. And, uh, and, and that's uh, usually not good for long-term growth. Now, if you need salespeople and you need uh, digital savvy ones, uh, pretty much everybody who's here in this podcast agrees these are extremely hard to find. Yes. What's your what's what's your advice? Where and how can you find good digital savvy salespeople? So my advice in general for hiring, but also for that, is to look at companies where you think they're good in selling as a founder, and then you go on LinkedIn and you just write those people, but you don't write the top guard, you write the second guard. So Suppose there's another company and that company is really good in sales. They, they will have a founder who has shaped that culture that you can, you can sell well. But then if you're in this company, either a head of sales or even just a salesperson, there's a good likelihood that that's above average quality. But that person has a, has a glass ceiling, which is that founder who sits there um, and isn't going anywhere. And then hiring those people is usually the best type of people. Um, uh, in in um, you, you, you could find. What a mean but very promising approach. <laughs> yeah, but headhunting is generally like that. It's uh, it's like <laughs> yes. headhunters approach other people. It's just about approaching the right people and not just shotgun approach, but thinking about which companies are actually good at the discipline. Because the fact one common problem I see is that that people is like, oh, this person, this person worked at 
this great company which has those massive rounds, something, and that that then there's the the the, the hollow effect of a company being good and thinking, okay, then everybody in this company is good. But that's not true. This company is good maybe because they're really good product people, but their sales actually sucks. Um, then you want to hire their product people, but not their sales company. And there are other companies which are really good in sales, and there you want to hire the salespeople and vice versa. Data. How should, can data make a company, an early stage company successful in, in our times? Well, data just generally means having uh, all the information you need at your fingertips, having that well organized and um, always having, uh, yeah, updated information at any time and transparently to the entire company. So I would say it's a no brainer to that it's one of the success factors. Which functional areas uh, should a data team support? Classic is marketing, because that's where you spend. And we talked about performance marketing that helps to measure and decide which campaigns to do. Um, would you limit it to that? Or which other teams do you think should, should, should be supported by a data team? No, all of them. I think data sits kind of in the middle, a little like finance uh, in the old days, but finance, and they also, of course, should support finance, but Data is about giving all departments the information they need in a digestible form and making also sure that way that they that they work well together because they look at the same data uh, and uh, yeah, constantly helping them to improve on that, that set of data. Should the data team answer specific questions or should they be free to explore data and, and find opportunities? I, I think both. Uh, the data team is a service team, so if there's a specific question, uh, then they should answer it. At the same time, they should also strive to to, to build um, a, a data operating system across the entire company. It's like almost in every other company, like there's some part which just needs to be done. And at the same time, you need part of your time to advance uh, the general agenda. And I would say that uh, that mix between Short-term things and long-term things um, applies for any, any function and, and so also for data. How can you ensure that your team does what the data recommend instead of looking at it, turning around and following just their gut feeling? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, probably also by the culture. Like if, if the culture is the CEO saying, I don't care what the data says, I have another opinion, then that builds... The, the, the hippo culture, highest, highest uh, paid person's opinion, I think, is the, is the acronym. Um, if, the, if the CEO says, okay, well, I, I was wrong on that. Uh, data says something different. Then you build the culture that data counts. And uh, that, that should be the, the culture. You still need to try things. I think trying is really important. Having a hypothesis is really important. But at the end, you should be... Uh, you should be uh, yeah, clear enough to admit that if, if you were wrong and the data is right, then you just made a mistake and that's okay. If you look at a very early stage company and they just want to approach data in the right way, which, which data tools or infrastructure, which stack would you recommend them? How, how would you recommend them to, to approach that? Well, I'm not a super expert on 
on on data tech stack. I mean, I can tell you in a couple companies what we use. We we use uh, Airtable in a couple companies, Metabase. Um, uh, but then, of course, in 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 the back, there's there's a lot of uh, stuff. I'm I'm always a fan also of privacy tools. Uh, so not necessarily using Google Analytics, but more something like 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 Pivik Pro, for example. Um, and uh, yeah, at, at the end, I think it's important that that all the different tools which are out there, and it's also good to try certain things, they come together in a in a, in, in one type of data warehouse. Um, uh, in, in a digestion so that you don't have silos. Um, uh, but, but there are many good tools out there. Which uh, different roles or functions do you see in the data team and how would you structure them? So I, I think it's important that there, in a data team there are some people who are real data scientists who are really kind of good in, in, uh, in connecting the, the, the dots and doing deep research, but then you also need some people who can translate that deep research into something the rest of the team actually understands um, in, in, in a more digestible form um, for customers, for the marketing department, um, uh, who bridge the gap between those more research-minded people and, uh, and the actual customers of the data. Um, where would you see the data team located in the organization? Where, in, in, in which stream should they uh, report? I don't think there's one single answer. Sometimes it can be the CTO. Sometimes it can be the finance department. It can be the CEO. It depends a lot on who has a passion for this topic um, and who is good with it. Uh, but I don't think it, it, there is only just one right answer for that one. GDPR, is it a struggle or an opportunity? <laughs> GDPR is, is both a struggle and an opportunity, I would say. Um, I think it, it, is, it has many right elements, but also some exuberances where we're saying, okay, it's, uh, it, it maybe has been gone a little too far. Um, I mean, things like, for example, the, the cookie notifications, all of that, I think those, those are just pure nuisances. Um, uh, but uh, other things I think are really important and we need to have the, the digital sovereignty in Europe uh, to, to, to also counter uh, American and Asian influences on, on kind of through the data here. And so I think as, as, as every law, it needs to be evolving and it needs to, uh, yeah, kind of, be shaped based on the experiences we now have had for a few years and, and hopefully it will. Environmental, social and governance. Um, I wouldn't say you start, I mean, like you, you actually did start ESG companies and now you did uh, World Fund. Why is that? Why did you do that? Yeah, so so that's that's definitely one, one of my pet topics or deep pet topics. I, I deeply believe that that especially climate, the climate crisis is one of the biggest challenges or not the biggest challenge we face as humanity. If we screw this one up, then I think uh, we have a real, real problem. And uh, so, so I want to devote my time to uh, starting and helping and financing these type of companies, which... Uh, 
which work massively to decarbonize uh, humanity, decarbonize our industries, decarbonize consumption um, to, to get into a more sustainable state. What can or what should any early stage tech company do in order to help our environment? So I think the first thing is to think about your own business model. Um, and there are business models, I think these days, things like in crypto, for example, where there are some good approaches, but there are also a lot of ones which have massive energy consumptions, which like if I would be a founder of them, I would just be ashamed of myself. Um, and you just shouldn't do those things in the first place. Like you don't, don't like want to, start a weapon company um, or uh, a tobacco company. Um, and I think you should you should feel the same thing about a company which has a massive carbon footprint. Um, that is one thing. Uh, then, of course, there's a lot of positive things you can do. You can bake sustainability into your business model, whether that's motivating your clients in a certain way, whether that's uh, offsetting uh, everything you, you do. But it's also about... Uh, decreasing your internal carbon footprint is like making sure you don't you don't fly uh, too much you definitely don't fly within europe but you don't fly you just reduce the amount of flights you think about yeah you just take take environmental things into concern with every decision like you would do cost uh, like people look at things and say okay they cost something and you should always think about carbon in the same way um, and so there's a lot of things uh, founders can do Which role should social aspects play in the way um, startups run their business? So social aspects should play a role. Um, I, I, I would argue that the environmental issues are bigger. Um, or they should, should be kind of first, uh, but social ones should play a role, I think, in the way you do hiring. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a fair and, and diverse way, uh, how you treat people. I think that's the the biggest thing you can do um, uh, as, as, a, as, an, as an employer is that you, just, you treat your people well uh, and fair. Um, uh, and, and lastly, that of course, also your business model, again, very similar to the environmental uh, logic, doesn't have any detrimental effects Uh, in a social way. There are, I would say there are less examples for that, but there are examples where businesses have, have, have very negative social implications. Uh, and also that's something where you rather not do it. What's your take on governance? I mean, everybody talks about ESG, everybody understands environmental, a little bit less social and governance. To be fair, most, most uh, actually interview partners have more question marks about that do you have any do you have any take on, on on governance criteria for startups i mean it's definitely less relevant on the startup side because governance becomes much more important when a company comes bigger and there are different stakeholders and their boards and supervisory boards and employee representation um so uh, but again i think it's in, in the startup world uh, it would boil down to really a simple sentence is try to govern things try to govern your company in the way you like to be treated uh, just with not a lot of structures but really just kind of common human decency uh, and for most companies unless they they grow to a very very large size i, I would say just generally that principle um, 
is, is enough as a, as a guideline. For the next question, I think I understand <clears throat> or I know the answer from your perspective uh, as a VC. But if you look into the market, if you have a startup that has a fo that that does focus on ESG, it's not their the core of what they do, but they do put emphasis on that. Will it rather help them getting funding, or would investors, other investors than you, what do you think, rather see it as a deflection from pure revenue focus? So. I mean, for, for us, certainly my view is clear that it will help, especially, for example, if you have a business model uh, where you bet on decarbonization, so you have a business model that that uh, reduces the carbon footprint, then we at World Fund, for example, we view this as, as a predictor for financial return because carbon will become more expensive. There are all the net zero pledges. Consumers and, and employees are a lot uh more critical and will become more critical. So actually it's a really good thing because you think forward and also actually the data shows that. So uh, sustainable companies have constantly outperformed uh, non-sustainable companies in the long run in, in the respective uh, stock, stock indices. Uh, so I would view it as a good thing. It can, of course, as everything, if you overdo it, it can go wrong if Sometimes we see companies who only care about this and they rather want to be a nonprofit. And again, there's nothing wrong with a nonprofit, but then you should be a nonprofit. Ecosia, for example, is a nonprofit now um, and it's growing very nicely, but we, we, we set it up as a nonprofit. Um, what you shouldn't do is you shouldn't try to be a nonprofit, but then raise investor money. Uh, you should pick sides. Uh, but there are a lot of really strong companies with a strong ESG focus. Uh, and there are some of them are among the best companies in the world um, who have that baked into their business model. They really care about this uh, and, and people recognize that. And also very important factor, people want to work there. Um, the, the job market is very competitive. If, uh, if you're a new job starter or also one who just changes jobs, uh, you want to work for someone who you can be proud of. Uh, and those are very often the companies who really, for example, care about the environment. Should startups or as of which stage should startups have something like an ESG officer or similar um, position? That's, I, I would say fairly late. It's a very formal position in the beginning. It's really like the founders built the culture. Um, so, so I would say a formal position like that is not necessary unless uh, until you're like maybe 50 or 100 people or so. Oh, I would have expected you to basically say that this is something that should exist very early in order to emphasize on that. But you're saying this the has to should do really that be in the beginning. The founder should the founder, do that. Okay. Needs to, which is even more important than delegating, even better than delegating it to someone. Sure. Is it's yeah. like, this is what I care about. I, I report, I have the board meeting. And I report uh, financial K KPIs, but I also report uh, my ESG numbers. That's a lot more powerful than than if you just delegate it to someone like you would delegate, I don't know, your tax returns. Yeah. Okay. Last three questions. Which is the one podcast all founders should listen to? Definitely the, uh, the OMR podcast from Philip Estermeyer. Something on the it, it, because it, it, it's it's a German uh, it's a German podcast. Uh, anything international? Anything English? 
anything English speaking? Um, good question. I'm I'm not a big podcast person. I'm a reader, not a not a listener. Um, so maybe any any advice in that direction then? Any advice? So sifted.eu is is really cool. Uh, it's focused on sustainability, and it's one of my favorite outlets on um, on the uh, sustainability startup world. What are your top two pieces of advice for early stage founders? Top two pieces of advice are one is like start your company in a team, two or more people, because it's just going to be a lot easier to go through all the ups and downs of a startup in that marathon you'll you have in front of you than going all alone. That is uh, number one. And uh, secondly is, is choose the people wisely you work with, whether that's founders or your early invest, your early uh, investors, uh, they play a big role. Like choose people you want to work with and who also share your vision over, for example, a larger valuation or people who just, uh, yeah, uh, want to make quick money. Um, and uh, same, of course, uh, for hires and employees, they, they shape things. So everybody whom you work with really shapes the, the culture of a company. And it's, uh, it's, it's something where you, you want to choose, choose your, your people wisely. Last question. Who are the two other founders? I should ask this set of questions and you can make an introduction for me. So I would, I would recommend um, Alex Meltzer, uh, founder of Solar, just raised a really big round. And uh, I think he has had a, a, a tremendous journey. Um, and uh, The, the second one would be Christian Kroll, the founder of Ecosia, um, who, um, yeah, I've, I've had the privilege to now work with almost for 10 years from when they were like three people to uh, the size they are now. And uh, especially in the area of, of, of running a sustainable company, super sustainable, I think he has some really, really good insights. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tim, for all your insights, for your 42 answers to our questions. Um, I'm much looking forward to the introductions and uh, seriously hope that you will make them right after. Um, right thanks after. to all the audience. Thanks for being here with us. And everybody, have a great week. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating. Thanks, guys.